welcome to another episode of The First Incision, a CMF podcast where we look at topics at the interface of faith and medicine affecting our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, Dr. John Greenall. I feel, therefore I am. You do you. Statements like this are commonplace in our culture, in which our feelings define reality. This has been termed, amongst other things, the effective revolution. We see this evident in issues such as transgender, but also in many other settings in which doctors and healthcare professionals have a front row seat. How do we think about this and respond both in the wider culture as well as those we meet in everyday life? And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jim Paul, who is Director of English Labrie, a Christian community that provides space for people to explore their questions and doubts about the Christian faith. Now, Jim is a former palliative care consultant and staff worker with CMF, so we know him well. Welcome, Jim. Hello. Great. It's really good to, to have you here. Jim, just as I, as I said, you, you used to work with CMF. Um, tell us a bit about your time as, as a doctor and how you got involved with CMF particularly. Um, well, I, yeah, I trained at the Royal Free Medical School in London, um, and I did uh, general medical training, MRCP, and then had a career in palliative medicine. But I, I first got involved in CMF um, coming to the conferences when I was a student. And then uh, when I was a junior doctor, I worked part time as a CMF staff worker while I was a, um, a medical SHO. Mm, brilliant. And, uh, and what sort of line, line of medicine, where did that take you? Um, yeah, well, I went into palliative care and I did a specialist training in that um, for five years and um, ended up... Uh, at the end of that, getting my specialist uh, certificate, specialist training, but then I kind of had a had a bit of a career change, and I um, went to work at Labrie, and I probably intended maybe to stay there a few years, but it's ended up sixteen years now, so I'm um, uh, well out of medicine in one sense, but I keep my eye on what's going on in the medical world still. Brilliant. And we've had the well, the joy of visiting you. So I've taken down our, our deeper fellows the last few years to be with you. And it's really interesting when I say to them, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to a, a Christian community and spend some time there. And they look, they look on their face, they're thinking, a Christian community, you know, what, what does that look like? But we have a fantastic time with you. So for those who don't know much about, about Labrie, what, what is Labrie and, and what do you do there? So uh, Labrie is one of a number of communities started by Francis Schaeffer, who was a Christian kind of thinker and apologist. And um, there's 10 of us that live there and work there. And then we invite um, anyone who wants to come to come and live with us um, for a while. They can come for a day or for up to a whole term and stay with us. And the idea is just to give people the space to really work through the questions that they have about the Christian faith. And they may be intellectual questions. They may be personal questions. You know, if I'm a Christian, why has this happened? Or uh, there may be vocational questions. You know, what, what should I do with my life? Uh, what direction should I go in? What does God want me to do? Um, and we just give, yeah, give people the time, the space to think through those questions we've got a library book library online lecture library and um it's also living together so a lot of the learning goes on through being together talking together and mm. learning together mm. yeah that no, was brilliant and yeah thank you thank you for that now you've recently um spoken on on this topic of the effective revolution so go on tell us tell us what you mean by that by that term yeah, well, it, it might be good to just start with um, some kind of signs of this revolution, because I, I think this is a revolution that's 
going on all around us, but we're kind of, we're probably aware of the signs and symptoms of it, but we're not kind of putting together what's happening. So, so um, I, I like to give some kind of illustrations that might, you know, you might recognize, yeah, might connect, connect yeah. with you. But one of the first of those was um, a few years ago uh, when I was at breakfast at Labrie, we're having a community breakfast. And the night before, um, some of the guests had watched the film Tree of Life by Terence Malick, right, which, yeah. uh, you know, some people may know. And I asked one of the, one of the, one of the guests, I, I, said, I said, what did you think of the film? And they said, oh, I didn't like it. It was a really bad film. And they said, and I said, well, why was that? And they said, well, it was, it was slow and it was confusing and it was boring. And I, as I reflected on that conversation, I thought it was interesting that I asked them, what did you think of it? But they replied what they felt about the film. I they see, said, yeah. it was boring and I didn't like it and it was a bad film. And... I began to think, what's going on here? Because actually, you know, they, they, they replied with a feeling when I asked for a kind of what their kind of analysis of the film. And they didn't engage with the film at any other level. You know, you could engage with the film. You could think about what was the cinematography like or what was the acting like or what was the script like or, you know, all those kind of things. But actually what they told me, first of all, was their kind of emotional response to the film, whether yes. they liked it or not. And then they made a judgment. It was a bad film because they didn't like it. Mm. And this started me off thinking about um, in our world, there's a whole lot of similar, um, you know, similar kind of patterns of thinking, well, of feeling, one would say, going on. For example, you know, uh, being in palliative care, I keep my eye on euthanasia and what's going on there. And one of the common things you hear when people are debating the morals of euthanasia is, is they say, oh, you know, I wouldn't want to be in that state. Therefore, euthanasia must be OK. Therefore, it should be legalized. You know, I wouldn't want to live with paralysis or with mm. motor neuron disease or something. And again, that's a kind of feeling, you know, I wouldn't like it like that, leading to a moral judgment and then a legal conclusion. We should legalize mm. euthanasia. Um, or, or you could take in politics, you know, the, the way that politics is totally dominated today by very emotive slogans like yeah, make America great again yes. or change or, you know, take back control. And all those things, they, they, they connect with us in an emotional way, but they have very little real content behind them. So that kind of started me off thinking, you know, there's something going on here. There's some kind of pattern and 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 what I kind of put it together with is thinking this this there's something where actually our emotions and feelings become uh, the mediator for reality to us. And that's why I call it the the affective affect means, you know, emotions or feelings that the whole of reality is mediated to us through our feelings. That's really interesting. Wow, my my thoughts are going going crazy at the moment. But let's 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 move on. So the, the issue of the effective self. So it's something that you're saying that hasn't always been around, and it's come on the scene. So how have we ended up with with this you know with this phenomenon? Yeah, well, um, I think it's you know obviously something that has um, got kind of philosophical and historical roots that have have brought us there. And I I. 
I kind of locate those in three different places. And I mean, I know this is just going to be like a huge kind of general overview of a very complex philosophy, but um, I think I, I, I would locate it in these kind of these three major kind of movements to get there. I, I um, Obviously, I've called the seminar that I did, I feel, therefore I am. So what I'm thinking about is this new idea of ourselves as that our feelings, we receive reality through our feelings and we kind of evaluate reality through our feelings and we also create reality through our feelings. So another example would be obviously in in transgender, um, if you look at any pro you know, transgender video, you'll see, you know, you are the gender that you feel you are. Right. You yeah. Know? And that would be an example of where, so you, in a sense, create your identity from your feelings. So that's the effect of self would be uh, where we receive, we evaluate, and we create reality through our emotions. And um, I took that phrase, you know, I feel, therefore I am. You might recognize that yeah. it's a. Absolutely. It, yeah. It, it's I think a derivation, or what would you call it? A. a a version of Descartes' famous right. statement, I think, therefore I, I, think, therefore I am. Mm. And um, so Descartes um, was a 17th century philosopher, and he um, was thinking about what you call epistemology. That's the theory of knowledge. So how do we know things about the world? How do we know what is true and how do we know what is real? And Descartes started by doubting everything, but then he kind of realized, well, somebody is thinking, so there must be a me. Mm-hmm. Right. Some, yep. Something is thinking something and that is, must yeah. be me. So that's where he came up with his statement, I'm thinking, therefore I am. Right. And then he f- worked out from there to logically prove the existence of God and of objects and people around him. But the, the important thing is that he started his knowledge of reality from himself, from his own thinking. Right. So that that's what I call an epistemological subjectivism. He started... Oh, good, say that again for us. That's an good, that's epistemological good. subjectivism. It means yeah. he started, he said, how do we know about reality? We know about reality starting with ourselves right. as subjects mm-hmm. inside a kind of in, internalism, you could call it. So we start with ourselves and thinking. And um, so that's the first the first kind of step and then the second step is in in the kind of 19th century with uh the romantic philosophers and poets so these would be people like you know wordsworth shelley byron coleridge um and other philosophers um german philosophers in that romantic movement and um they were really reacting in sense in the way that Descartes kind of very rationalistic, you know, I think, therefore I am. Everything was rationalistically thought through. And um, they kind of reacted against that type of philosophy because they were finding that it was increasingly making the world feel um, kind of just uh, very inhuman in a certain way. Just mm-hmm, just right. everything was so rational, boxed up. Um, and the world, as as science was reducing the world into molecules and atoms, um, they they kind of found the world being, in a sense, disenchanted mm-hmm. from um, yeah. And 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 the poets, you think of Wordsworth, you know, he was walking in the Lake District, and you know, the whole of reality was just becoming molecules and atoms. And suddenly, he sees these beautiful daffodils. 
and he has just moved emotionally, you know, to write the, the, his famous poem, Daffodils. Yeah, that's right. But he, he, you know, he's, and, and the romantic said, no, actually what connects us with reality is not thinking, but feeling. It's, it's, it's actually feeling that makes us connect with reality and we become alive and so the romantics really saw that the people that knew most about reality were not the, you know, the, the kind of uh, rational scientists, but actually the artists who, you know, passionately engage with reality. So here we see like, you know, the same kind of theory of how do we know about reality? Well, it starts with ourselves, but we see a change from thinking to feeling. Mm -hmm. They said it's not the thinking self, it's the feeling self. Mm -hmm who knows about reality. So that's, that's the second, the second part. Mm -hmm. And then the last part I, I would put much more recently in the kind of postmodern theorists. Um, so you get people like, um, Zizek or Foucault, Baudrillard, um, the, uh, Derrida, the, the kind of postmodern philosophers of the 20th century. And they began to kind of deconstruct theories of knowledge or, or kind of bodies of knowledge. And, um, they became encouraged a kind of suspicion of all kind of systems of knowledge, whether they were like medical or religious or legal. And they said that actually those systems of knowledge are constructed usually by power elites, people in powerful positions in order to impose their view of reality on others. Right. Okay. So an example might be uh, Foucault. The, uh, the um, uh, philosopher Foucault wrote a lot about medicine, actually, and, mm -hmm. and he wrote about things like mental health. And he said that, that, you know, the definition of what is mental illness and mental health is actually decided by doctors. Mm -hmm. And that gives them power over this field of, 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 of uh, mental health and illness, the power to define what is normal and what is abnormal, the power to lock people up. Right. If they are abnormal, yeah. and then it gives power to um, pharmacological um, companies to make medicines that you know that that um, treat people, so they became very suspicious of um, all kind of systems of um, rational kind of systems of thought, and what they essentially ended up with saying, or, or where it ended up, is saying in order to be free, you need to reject all these external definers of reality and you must decide reality for yourself. Mm -hmm. That is the way that you are free, is if you decide what is real and what is true from yourself, for yourself. And so that's the last kind of bit in, the, in these three bits that fit together. So you get the kind of like knowledge starts with me, it starts with my feelings and then I must reject what the world defines as being real and define it for myself. I call that expressive individualism. And I must be free to express who I am and my own identity, my own being for myself into the world and kind of against the world's pressure mm. to define who I am. Mm. You're right. I mean, we do see that, don't we? Everywhere. I'm just thinking a number of areas in society where we see that that worldview really coming through very very powerfully and this pushback i think particularly in the area of transgender or the pushback of of medics being involved and and a lot of people say well medics shouldn't be involved because you're defining yeah who's who's well and who isn't and actually back off this is actually about my you know my 
right to choose and to express who I really am. Yeah, and I think you can see it as well in if you think about, you know, some of the, say, transgender dialogue is around, you know, um, they, they talk about the gender you were assigned at birth, mm. you know, and that would be like, well, someone else assigned your gender. It was the medical profession. Yeah, an oppressive outsiders. And, yeah, yeah, defining yes. it for you. And actually you need to be free of that to define it for yourself. Mm. And so so from that, I kind of, I kind of um, have got um, what I call the affective rights thesis, which mm. is, I think, something that really... Um, drives us today and and i guess the effective rights thesis is something like this it it would say um that i have the right to express my feelings as reality Mm -hmm. that's i have the basic right if i'm going to be happy and i'm going to be free i must have the right to express my feelings as reality and then i have the right for those feelings to be accepted and affirmed and allowed to form reality Mm, otherwise i'm being victimized and mm. oppressed right yeah we see that yeah and i think that's the kind of yeah. you know that's what i call as you know you can see that operating in all kinds of different areas yes. um, no absolutely today. absolutely so what what do you think are some of the inconsistencies in you know in this worldview that you that you see yeah well i i would say that um there are kind of three major questions that i, th- I think we might ask about it and one, one would be this to you know, to begin to think about what, to what extent can our feelings really define reality around us? Um, for example, uh, you had the case of uh, Rachel Dolezal. I don't know how you pronounce it, Dolezal, um, in the States. And she was um, um, an activist with, in the National Association for, I think, the pr- promotion of coloured people. And it was actually found out uh, in 2015 that um, she had no black ancestry herself. So she was passing herself off as being a black person, but she had no black ancestry. And she then said, um, although she, she eventually agreed that she was born white to white parents, she then said, but I self-identify as black. And, uh, you know, I would raise the question of, of to what degree can we self-identify from our feelings and although people have argued and, and um, uh, over, you know, her case, if you begin to think about a different case, for example, is feeling kind the same as being kind? Mm, interesting. So yeah. I, I would say that there is, a, there is a problem if I feel that I'm kind, but people I'm in relation with, relationship with say that I'm cruel or uncompassionate, selfish and narcissistic. <laughs> you know, if I feel yes. I'm kind, but people yeah. consistently report back that I'm actually very inconsiderate, then what reality what is, is there reality? actually to my feeling? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, surely for my kindness to be a reality, people should experience, experience me that. as kind. So yeah. that's one question. Or, or again, you know, how can our feelings define reality? I, I was 50 um, a couple of months ago. Oh, and okay. I, oh, happy birthday. Believe, I do find it hard to believe. I've got more grey hair than you, actually, Jim. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, um, you know, if I said to you, well, I feel 35, I, I would say that is not a meaningless statement. What I would be saying is that I feel, you know, younger than I am. I feel yeah. still energetic. I feel, you know, that I've got lots, um, yeah, lots of energy and, and et cetera. But, um, you know, they, I, I wouldn't be able to change my passport, mm-hmm. the age of my passport, because I said I feel 35. Or what about if I said, well, I feel six? 
Mm. I doubt many people would let me into a primary school to be a pupil in a primary school. Um, Or even, you know, to take more extreme case, if you took someone who is anorexic, they would feel that they were overweight and needed to lose more weight. But obviously, as, um, you know, family or, or doctors or whoever involved in the care of people who are anorexic, you know, you you wouldn't go with their feelings and, and say, oh, yeah, you must reduce your weight further because mm. you still feel overweight. So that that's my first question. Um, to what extent can mm. our feelings really define reality? Mm, that's really helpful. Um, yeah. Then I would also ask, like, you know, can our feelings always tell us what is good? Because um, for, take the instance of someone who's a, who's a chronic, has a chronic helper personality. Mm. To them, it always feels good to say yes. And it always feels bad to say no. But that kind of person who, you know, cannot say no to anything, eventually, you know, will have a breakdown and burnout Mm -hmm. from just being overloaded with demands. So sometimes it may be that something that feels wrong or bad, like for that person saying no to things, actually might be good for us Mm -hmm. and what we need. Or, um, or, Or the film, I mentioned Tree of Life, um, I, I actually think that it is a very good film mm. and that um, if we feel bored by it, the problem may not be with the film, but it might be with us, mm. you know, and that actually perhaps we have to learn to engage more fully with a work of art like that film, um, um, you know, and, and stretch ourselves uh, to engage. I, I think, you know, the way it's made, the cinematography, the dialogue, the characters, you know, the story that it tells. I, I, th- I think it's truly exceptional piece of filmmaking, yeah. you know. So if we if we if we say, well, you know, I didn't like it because I was bored. Maybe the problem is in us. So that's that's the second question, and the third one I would think about in terms of feelings is how stable a reality is a reality based on feelings. Um, you know, for example. Um, you know, if I said to my children, you know, I don't feel like being a parent today. You know, I'm not going to parent you. I don't feel like there it. are moments. <laughs> there are moments we all feel like yeah, that as parents, yeah. don't we? But um, yeah. you know, uh, I, th- I think a reality that's based just on your feelings becomes very narcissistic mm. because it all becomes essentially about you and making you feel good or at ease or comfortable. So anyway, th- those are some of the questions I- mm. I'd-, I'd put. Um, in fact, in the seminar, actually, someone raised a very good one. As they said, um, you know, how do we rank different feelings against each other? Mm. And, of course, this, this is coming up in transgender a lot because um, there was a case a while ago of a lady in a gynecology clinic who said that she only wanted to be examined by a female nurse. And then the nurse that was assigned to examine her was a, a transgender woman, but who... who looked very male still and so you know whose feelings do you go with not offending the transgender person not mm-hmm. offend you know yeah. or, or do you go with the, the woman's feelings I, mm. I think she'd been you know had suffered violence mm. from men before yeah so that you know how do you rank different yeah. people's feelings so they, those are just some of the questions I'd, that's I'd really helpful because this, this isn't this isn't just philosophical thought this these are actually this has real world implications yeah it? yeah no absolutely I, I think yeah. because the this is what's going on in our culture so yeah. it's it's affecting all areas of life yeah. I mean, that's yeah, deeply, yeah thank you so i mean how does the affective self then contrast with a, a christian view of the self 
Because that's what we want to yeah. get to, isn't it? Yeah. How, how, yeah. how can we see that as Christians? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, to say what, what I definitely don't want to do is, because um, it could be very easy to look at, you know, the, the kind of effective generation, as you, you might call them, and say, oh, the problem is subjectivity. You know, they're all wrapped up in their feelings. And what we've got to go to is the opposite extreme, which would be a kind of total mm-hmm. objectivity. Yeah, yeah, super objectivity. Yeah, see, yeah. And, but, and, and, but I, I, don't, I don't think that's the right, the answer, not, um, yeah, I don't think it's the right answer. And I also think it's not going to work because actually, in a sense, the, the, the subjective generation partly is a response to the kind of dry objectivity, as I said, you know, of, of, of previous generations. But also, I, I don't think the Christian worldview is a worldview of pure objectivity. And the, the reason I say that is because because the source of all reality within a Christian worldview, God himself, is not pure, absolute objectivity. He is objectivity and subjectivity mm. uh, integrated because God is Trinity. So he's not, right. God is not just a total kind of, unity of objectivity he is actually uh, i call it you know perfect objectivity because he is one but also perfect subjectivity because he is three three persons in one the christian uh, view of god or god's revelation of himself in the bible is three in one and one in three objectively one god subjectively three persons you Mm. could say and the interesting thing when you think about who god is is that um that that uh, the reality, in a sense, of who God is, is found in the relationship between objectivity and subjectivity. So, for example, if you think of the first person, the Trinity, is God, the Father. Yeah. And if you think of what a father is, a father is not a father on his own. Mm. Right, yeah. Do you see what it, yeah. it has no real meaning or existential reality to be a father without a son or a daughter mm. see so so a father is only a father when there is a son or a daughter in obviously in god's case the second person of the trinity is god the son so then there's a father and a son and then father becomes a reality in the relationship between subject and object mm-hmm. do, you, do you get yeah, what i mean no, I got it. yeah so yeah. um and actually god then you could say also existentially experiences the reality of fatherhood in the relationship like you can't experience being a father without having a son or a daughter. Yes. Do you yeah, get do you yeah, get what I mean? Yeah, so, gotcha, yeah. so the relationship there is is crucial. And I, I think that provides a model for the whole of reality. Uh that um when you begin to to think um about yeah, the whole of reality, because God is the author of reality, so the whole of reality comes from him. It is in that same shape, subject, object, relational reality. So you, if you think about the earlier example I talked about, kindness, mm-hmm. um, there must be, I think, an object for me to be kind to in order for me to be a kind person. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yeah, the, the, sure. the reality of being kind is only experienced in a subject-object relationship. Right, yeah. If I'm kind to you after this interview, John, and make you a cup of tea oh, and bring you a yep. biscuit, yep. you know, then you could say, thanks for being so kind. Real kindness. Yeah, yeah. that yeah, that would be... So it takes place within that relationship. Mm. Um, it has to be more than just I feel, you know, I'm kind. It has to actually, in a sense, be incarnated into a relationship. Um 
And, you know, another example you could give um, would be, um, I was thinking about love or the love of God. It struck me in, in John three sixteen, which is a very well-known Bible verse. You yeah. know, it doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he had lots of amazing love feelings and felt really warm and fuzzy about humans. <laughs> it says, what does it say, John? For God so loved the world that... He gave. Yeah. He gave he, his son. He gave his one and only son. Yeah. So that his love was enacted towards the objects, which is us. Yeah. And then it becomes, you know, if, if you like, then it becomes reality or, or it is alive within reality mm-hmm. and i i think this provides a, a model for the whole of like that actually you know our feelings are not unimportant but they're not the whole of reality mm-hmm. i think that that would be a really important thing that you know i want people to to in a sense take away not yeah. to not to discourage feelings yeah they're a god-given part of our humanness you know god has emotions he, you know, he, he is compassionate. He loves, you know, he's angry when his world is distorted and destroyed. Um, he's jealous, protectively jealous of us in a, in a, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a wonderful way, loving way. So, so, you know, emotion, the problem is not emotions, but it's when emotions become the center of reality, the definers of reality and the only way that we evaluate reality and what I what um I think happens in this relationship between subject and object is that emotions actually um are part of the ways we connect with reality. And um this is what C.S. Lewis says in 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 say the abolition of man. And I'll, I'll give you a little example. So if you were standing, let's say you went into um, the countryside and you're away from all the lights and light pollution. And um, you looked up and it was a clear night and you looked up at the sky. What, you know, what is the feeling that you would have? Oh, just, I mean, awe, wonder. Yeah, at the stars I could see, yeah. That's yeah. exactly it. You would have that feeling mm-hmm. when you have awe and wonder. And you think about what the, um, what the feeling of awe is. It's like, it's some kind of feeling of, wow, that is so big and mm-hmm. I'm so small. Yeah, absolutely. And yet somehow that, you know, you were kind of meant to see all this, something mm-hmm. like that. That feeling of awe actually connects you with the reality of the stars at night. Mm. It, it, it is it is you are responding to what is there and mm-hmm. and and so feelings have this crucial role to play they're not reality themselves but they actually connect us with reality um or if you say let's another another thing might be let's say you saw a child who was lost you know your feeling would be oh I, this has happened to me so i know very well the, the feeling it's always one of them in particular um oh just a deep sense of dread and just an awful right. awful feeling in the pit of my stomach yeah if yeah. your if your child was yeah. yeah and if you saw a lost child like somebody else's you would yeah you'd you'd, you'd feel i don't know and again it's happened to me you just you think oh goodness someone's lost and this isn't right yes. you know there's there's a disconnection i need to we need to put this right yeah, yeah it's not right there's something wrong and you would feel say you know compassion yeah. and empathy and yeah you'd feel wow that's terrible to be lost and you would go and help mm. so the you know the response to the reality of the lost child would be compassion you know empathy and then that would lead you to going to help mm. So you see that there's a connection there between, you know, there's an object, a lost child or the stars at Mm. night. And then there's a response to that object, which takes Mm. place within me subjectively. Mm. 
And then that connects me to the reality and also, you know, leads to a response. But I, I think it's, you know, when we feel those things like compassion or awe, we are really experiencing reality, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're living in it. And, um, and that's, I think, you know, that's how we're made to live. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, in a fallen world, that's very important that sometimes we can have the wrong responses to reality. So, you know, if you were to look at the stars at night and you would say, wow, I am so big, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm amazing. You know, that yeah. would be an inappropriate response. Or if you saw the child and you said, oh, you know, um, you, you, you kind of blindfolded them and spun them around and sent them off in the wrong direction. You know, you felt contempt for them. That would be the wrong response, wouldn't yeah. it? You know, so um, in a fallen world, because of experiences and broken relationships, we can have wrong responses. Yeah. And uh, I, th- I think the, the charge, in a sense, to Christians is to, to go deeper into the real connections in reality you know um and and uh to um yeah to actually um move deeper into reality and to begin to respond to it more truly Mm -hmm. to what it actually is there you know that there is a shape to reality it's it's given god has given his shape into reality and um I, I think that's what a you know Hans Ruckmark, who worked at the Dutch Library, said. A Christian is someone who goes deeper into mm. reality mm. Um, and and to really understand it. And I, I actually think that's what it means to be righteous. To be a righteous person is to live rightly mm. in relationship to reality around mm. you. You know, mm. to to God, to other people, to ourselves, to the natural world. Mm. And as you begin to see the connections of reality and live in them well then you begin to yeah you become righteous mm. i think mm. no this rightly. is so this is so helpful i mean and just as we as we close really jim i mean you know for those those listening who are you know day, day-to-day lives in uh, many medics and, and healthcare professionals listening to this um what is you know just something on what this what this looks like in, from a day-to-day perspective of actually living you know with that right regard to, to reality yeah, you know, I, I think the most important thing I want to say is just to help us really put emotions in their right place. Mm. Um, in the the effective uh, revolution, emotions have become you know the, the absolute center of reality, which defines reality, evaluates reality for us. And and I, I would say in a Christian worldview, uh, emotions are important. They're a part of our god-given humanness they're part of the ways we connect with reality around us and um but they're not reality itself um you know we live in a world where there's a reality outside of our thinking and feelings there is a lewis says a, a, you know that the universe this is in the abolition of man c.s lewis the universe is a certain kind of thing and we are a certain kind of thing and 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 i think that's absolutely right you can't just you know, make remake our humanness in any shape. There's a shape to our humanness, mm. and um, our emotions are part of the ways we connect with reality, but they're not reality itself. So that I think that's very helpful in a number of areas. You you could you could think on, you know, if if somebody, uh, um, you know, I want to say this very very sensitively, um, but if you know if someone says, say they're 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 a, a woman, or, and they say, you know, I feel like a man. 
that statement is not unimportant mm -hmm. you know it is important they're saying yes. something yeah real in that statement you know i feel like a man they're saying something about the way they feel internally but then i i would think it would be good to ask some you know questions not to accept that then as total reality but you know why and what do they mean by man and mm -hmm. what is a man and what does a man mean to them and um all those things and and you know um have they always felt that way and and you know many many things that we we must you know i think in all kinds of ways we, we can clearly see from the instance of being kind that you know our feelings are not reality themselves mm. they tell us important things um so so to you know to have that as a kind of world view and I, I would also say that it's really i i would encourage people that um you know to engage with the created reality of things i i came across a lovely quote in in a book um which was talking about music and a composer in the maybe 19th century and um um a, a member of the royal family in europe was at the concert and um this uh, the member of the royal family had said to the composer after he'd listened to his piece of music you know i was entertained and the composer said, I did not mean to entertain you. I meant to make you a better human being. Mm. And I, I think that's, you know, really what happens as we engage with reality as it is, is, is actually we do grow, we do become, you know, as we engage with God's reality. Um, and part of that as well as he's spoken into his reality about who he is, mm. you know. And as we move towards him, we actually become more human we become more who we were made to be we mm -hmm. find our meaning our identity um in the effective self you know people uh think you know if i look inside myself i will you know and, and express my feelings i will become more who i who i am but but i think when we do that we actually just get stuck inside our own heads and mm -hmm. we go round and round but actually i think when we move towards relationships with reality and ultimately with you know with the author of reality we we do actually become more who we're made to be mm. and we live in that reality you know mm. well in a way that actually is existentially meaningful mm. you know mm. if i'm kind to you and make you the cup of tea john and and um you know you say thanks jim then something has happened in that relationship between us that is mm. meaningful you know and that that is building and deepening that relationship mm. And, and, you know, and that's actually God-given. That's yeah. how we become who he made us to be. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thanks, Jim. I, I feel like we've really just scratched the surface here. I thought I could talk all day about this, but we're out of time. I wonder if, if are there any sort of particular resources or anywhere that people are thinking, oh, this is really interesting. I'd love to to know more. Where might they go to to read? And you mentioned, I know, The Abolition of Man yeah, yeah, along the way, yeah. for example. Yeah, I would read, yeah, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man is, is not an easy book to read, but it's very short. Yes. It's it only 60 short. pages. So um, I, I really recommend that in terms of, and he, he will expand this. Um, if I can do a bit of self-advertising, yeah, sorry, do. apologies yeah. for that. But um, um, at the English Library, we have a podcast site. So it's, it's on uh, Podbean English English Library. And if, you, if you're interested in the kind of I, this idea of subject-object relational reality, I, I, I did a lecture a couple of weeks ago that's on there on um, expanding that whole kind of idea and going into it in much more detail. Mm. Um um yeah so that would that would be and you know and we've also got a whole online resource the library yeah. ideas library That's which right. has got lots of you know kind of um lectures um on philosophy and history and thinking and 
all the kind of things we talked about. Good. I'm glad you've done that because I'm I'm frequently there and and hugely benefit from from all that all that comes from the brief from yourself and many others. So. Thank Jim, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you. Um, and mine's white with two sugars. Great. So, uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, John. <laughs> Great. Thanks very much. Well, look, I hope you've enjoyed that. I certainly have. And we look forward to being with you in a couple of weeks' time for another episode. 